Welcome to the Huxley Morton podcast. This week I am joined by Sirapi Sharma, director and project leader of Sanofi, uh, who's going to be sharing her story about moving up in the world of, of pharmaceuticals and from one country over to the States. Um, it'll be interesting to hear how it's all, all worked out and the cultural differences. Sirapi, um, you and I have spoken just recently um, as we're on the lead up to the Christmas. So for anyone listening, it is the 16th of December. Um, but tell us, give us a quick introduction about yourself, what your, your role is at Sanofi, and uh, I guess a little bit about your, your background. Absolutely. So currently, as you have kindly introduced me, uh, I'm the project leader of clinical sciences and operations in diabetes and cardiovascular divisions of Sanofi. Yeah. Uh, so just to give a quick idea, I oversee five compounds and in, in different phases of development, clinical mm -hmm. development, all the way from some just starting in phase one, all the way up to some as, as advanced as, um, you know, having a bunch of phase three clinical trials, large mm -hmm. global clinical trials and ready for uh, NDA or BLA submission. Okay, so how did I, I guess so? That's that's your current role, and, and that's what you're you're now up to. Um, mm -hmm. Look, before we dive into that and some of the exciting things that have been going on in, in your world over the past, say nine months with the the outbreak and, and things, let's first rewind right back because when um, when I first reached out to you is because I saw some of the the voluntary work that you do, some of the um, master's degrees that you had picked up over the years. So look, um, I know that you got your first master's degree um, back, in, back in India. Um, mm -hmm. How did you end up going from, from that and to move into the States to getting into the world of, of pharmaceuticals and, and clinical trials? Yeah, it, it's been a long, interesting journey. Uh, you don't want to get me started with a 10 hour <laughs> uh, story, but what I can quickly summarize is I did my first master's in India from the premier institute in India, Indian Institute of Technology. Yeah. At that time, it was still called University of Turkey. And uh, that was in biotechnology and biosciences. Uh -huh. um, and then I decided to stay over and started working as a research associate or a project fellow mm -hmm. uh, in structural biology. And the more I worked in structural biology, the more I got interested in research. And um, you know, I started applying for higher education in structural biology. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I applied to some Indian institutes also, and. Um, you know, across the globe. And at that time, it was, you know, there were very few institutes in India that were specializing in structural biology, especially my area of uh, NMR. So um, that is why I was applying elsewhere across the globe also. So it so happened that I was accepted at university at Buffalo uh -huh. with a full fellowship, and uh, which means which meant I didn't have to do any graduate assistantship or teaching assistantship, and I could focus completely on my research mm -hmm. and on getting a PhD. It was a master's PhD program. Yeah. So I came uh, halfway across the world to Buffalo 
um, to get started in, in my master's PhD program. And at that point, um, you know, I was very siloed and I, I was basically working on wet science labs. Mm. And at one point, um, one of the uh, deans in Roswell Park Cancer Institute where I was working, uh, which is affiliated to University at Buffalo, yeah. um, he sent out uh, a very interesting long email to all the students um, that there is, um, you know, a whole wide world out there. Uh, you can do a lot of things, uh, even with PhD, without PhD, even with a master's. Um, and and he opened it up, opened my eyes to, you know, just because I decided to be in a silo doesn't mean I have to be in a silo. Yeah. I started, um, uh, you know, asking questions. What happens once we make a great drug in the wet lab in, on the computer? <laughs> great. On our petri dishes, it looks great. So are we ready to give it to the patients? And my supervisor at that point said, you know, wait a minute. There is a whole area called uh, preclinical research where the drugs are tested on animals. Mm. So we can't just keep, you know, once we have a, a good drug on, on computer, on petri dishes, that doesn't mean you can give it to the patients. Yeah. Got interested, took some courses in preclinical research and moved to University at Michigan at Ann Arbor mm. um, to get into preclinical research. It still had a lot of NMR. I was also introduced to the field of MRI. I was working on oncology drugs, uh, drug testing. Um, mm. And again, curiosity got the better of me at some point, and I asked the same question. So yeah. what happens after this? Are we ready to give it to the patients? And my then supervisor introduced me to clinical research and said there's a whole component of human testing before, uh, you know, the patients can have it. Yeah. Um, so I was very curious about it. Um, at that time, uh, you know, I, will, I also got married and moved to greater New York area. And I started taking some courses at Rutgers University mm. uh, to learn about clinical research. Um, but the jobs, when I was trying to find a job in preclinical research or even in clinical research, mm. uh, you know, the jobs in clinical research were not very forthcoming. It's the catch-22 situation yeah. uh, always, because if you don't have the experience, you won't get the job. But if you don't have the job, then how do you get the experience? Um, <laughs> You're preaching for the converted there. I, I, as I say, I run a recruitment business, so I, I know all too well the, the struggles for, for job seekers on that side of things. Yeah, so although I had a lot of research background, but no one was ready to give me, you know, the first starting job in clinical research. And I mm. was just applying for a clinical research coordinator position uh, at any of the um, hospitals in the area. So uh, since it was not going anywhere, um, I uh, started talking to some of my friends. They introduced me to some other people who became my mentors and yeah. have been lifelong mentors. Mm -hmm. uh, they suggested, why don't you volunteer pro bono and get some experience if that is the only handicap you're facing? So I 
thought that was a good idea. Um, if nothing else, I'll get some experience in something new. I'll learn something new and then maybe keep on, you know, trying to find jobs in preclinical research. Uh, and it's, so such, I started, such good, it's such a good way in. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're always giving advice to aspiring oh. research coordinators, research associates, and, um, you know, one, that's the one thing we say to all of them, that if, if you're struggling to get in, that you do need to stand out somehow. And it may be that you've got a unique personality, in which case use it, maybe send a, a voice message to a hiring right. manager, a video message. But, you know, if, that, if you're not comfortable with that, then, you know, look at voluntary work, build up your CV, because all you need is that foot in the door. And it sounds as though that, that's kind of the, the route that you went, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I was looking for volunteer positions also and not getting much traction till I found um, uh, an associate professor in University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey mm -hmm. in New who was looking for someone to crunch his data on functional MRI. And that was, you know, functional MRI is all human research. Um, but he was struggling to find someone who could help him crunch all that, you know, big data. Um, I had that experience having been worked in MRI and NMR before, yep. uh, but I didn't have any experience in human research. So it was a win-win situation for both of us. I went there as his data manager, if you can say that. Yeah. Uh, working on his big data, trying to work on the algorithms and trying to crunch that all that data. Uh, the way he showed it to me and in return i was um i had the opportunity to at least observe uh, how clinical research is done how you know a consent is taken um how to handle patients what kind of data uh, is collected what is a protocol and that experience was really good and i did that for six months but that opened up, um, you know, people's uh, um, mindset and they started looking at me as uh, someone who could do clinical research. So mm -hmm. within six months of volunteer work, I was saleable. Amazing. And then I got my first clinical position, clinical research coordinator position mm -hmm. at Mount Sinai. So that, that was the journey. <laughs> I can imagine. And look, I know all too well, I guess, just from starting a, a business myself i know that the, the first six months it was it was it was awful really you know i, I had these big ideas of how it was going to go and you know making loads of money as i had done it you know, <laughs> previous employer and it just it wasn't like that at all it was so much harder than i ever thought it was going to be and i think right. I, when you and i spoke the other uh, the other day i was just highlighting just how close i was to almost jacking it in because it just wasn't financially Mm -hmm. even viable you know um yeah. i had a mortgage to pay you know my partner and i were thinking about having children and it just it just yeah mm -hmm. we came so so close to almost just giving it all up because it was tough and that's that's the i guess the one struggle that perhaps people at that stage maybe mm -hmm. also are, are facing so how did how did you manage to to cope with yeah working unpaid um without <laughs> having any guarantee of what was to come yeah so it was a leap of faith if i can say no other word can justify that um you know i was working for those six months in pro bono position 
my husband at that time was working as a postdoctoral fellow in new york city mm -hmm. uh, at a prestigious institute and we had to keep the food on the table we had a newborn at that time and imagine you know one person's salary was not enough to um, uh, to get the kid into the daycare and put the food on the table so especially when i was working as a volunteer um, at umdnj um, i literally had to come up with uh, you know thinking outside the box kind of solutions mm. um, you know for data crunching um, i negotiated with my supervisor if i could start later in the day yeah and that was because between me and my husband uh, we used to stagger our uh, time slots so he would go to work in the city in new york city um, 6 a.m he would start his work so he would start really early mm. and by 2 p.m he would be back home and i would be literally standing at the door to hand over the baby to him because we couldn't afford the daycare i would be standing at the door hand over the baby and you know drive off Wow. Uh, to be at um, UMBNJ and New York um, uh, campus, uh, to be there at, at least 2.33. And I would start my work at 3 and go on till 9, sometimes even later. Wow. And you know, New York was not a very safe area in those days. I'm sure it's not a safe area now also. Some areas are not safe. Um, so it was not a safe area to be driving alone in the middle of the night, sometimes 10 p.m., 10.30, was not, you know, uh, very appealing to anyone. But that's how I did it. I mean, at least I could see some human um, uh, clinical research interaction from 3 p.m. to 5. Yeah. And after that, I would be doing my data crunching, sitting alone in the lab, uh, and then to drive back home. Um, wow. And even after six months, when I... Uh, got the job, you know, because I was an immigrant, I needed an H-1B. Mm -hmm. I had an H-1B before at University of Michigan when I was working in preclinical research. But since I had to take a break and I moved to greater New York area, um, whatever institute needed to um, hire me, they would have to have a transfer of H-1B and at that point, not even a transfer, a new H-1B needed to be sponsored for me. Yeah. That's not a fast process. Um, even if you expedite that, it could take a couple of months. So we were struggling there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my supervisor at Mount Sinai offered that I could start work immediately, but he won't be able to pay me without the visa. Um, wow. And at that point, it was a difficult choice. Do I give up this position because I don't have the money to commute to New York City, because I don't have the money to put my baby uh, in a daycare, or, you know, be transparent to him and, you know, again, think outside the box, see if there's any alternative that can be offered. And that's what I did. Um, I was very open and transparent. I told my supervisor I would love to start tomorrow, but I have some limitations. I don't have money to, mm -hmm. um, to commute every day from New Jersey to New York. I don't have money to put my son in daycare. 
um, and there's no way you want me to stagger as uh, my job with my husband in clinical research because even traveling from New Jersey to New York would take more than an hour. So I, you wouldn't want me to start later in the afternoon. It's not like a data management job where I can sit alone in, in a lab. Mm. So he understood. Um, he was very uh, open-minded, very sympathetic. Um, I believe everyone has gone through some adversity and in, in their earlier lives uh, when they are setting up themselves. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he had to. Um, he could relate to it. And he said, okay, I can do... I cannot give you the money for your daycare, but what I can do is um, I can at least give you the employee pass to commute from New Jersey to New York. It will be all paid by the Institute. Um, at least that will help you. Now, I don't know how you're going to get um, you know, the money to put your son in daycare. So again, I tried to stagger at least half of my day uh, with my husband. And that way we were only paying half day of, um, uh, you know, uh, daycare, which is very expensive in the U.S. <laughs> and I, oh, I know it's much the same here in London. <laughs> I don't think yeah. that ever change. Yeah. And we exhausted all of our savings. And, you know, we, we also had to borrow some money from our friends. But at that point, it was basically a leap of faith. I didn't know if it was going to work out. I didn't know if I would get the H-1B. Uh, even before that, when I was working pro bono, I didn't know if, if it would really lead to any kind of um, job uh, in the area that I was trying to get to. But at some point, you have to take some calculated risk. And that was my calculated risk, which paid off. Mm. Well, it's an uh, amazing, yeah, le as you say, leap of, of faith. And I think that so many people have, have done that. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm always giving advice to, you know, people that are either coming through the ranks with us in the recruitment world or looking to get into clinical research. You know, I'm mm -hmm. always, I'm very, and yeah, very open and transparent with my own sort of um, stories as, as well, because as you said, most people have had some form of adversity that mm -hmm. they've had to come through. And I think that transparency is everything. And that's one thing I've right. always prided myself on. It's just been just being very open, easy to deal mm -hmm. with and, and transparent because exactly. I normally find that if you're open and honest with people, mm -hmm. actually people want to try and help, you know, people mm -hmm. don't want to close you down. And, you know, clearly your manager at the time saw that you were a great individual to have on the team. And if it mm -hmm. means bending a few of the norms, why mm -hmm. not do that? It just, yeah. it, for me, it just makes complete sense. Exactly. Um, so it sounds like there would have been, yeah, a lot of challenges um, at that time, you know, including sorting out the, the H-1B um, mm -hmm. and just perhaps just differences to what you're used to from, you know, coming over from, from India prior to, to this, you know, so it's a different working world. Um, mm -hmm. What other, I guess, there was perhaps different um, cultural differences that you um, experienced at that time when you were sort of new mm -hmm. to the States. Tell me about because I mean this we we didn't cover uh, when you and I spoke earlier, but I always do speak about the the cultural differences when I'm speaking to mm -hmm. staff work, working all around the world. What was some of the the unique differences that you noticed from from India to to the states? Because mm -hmm. yeah, sometimes it's quite fascinating to hear just little things that go on in certain countries, and and you know mm -hmm. you just never never know, and and it's just must be such a, a change. 
yeah yeah it is a huge difference especially if you are the first to migrate in your family uh-huh um and on the professional end also if you are coming from a country um where you were a citizen you never had to think about visa situation you never had to think about uh, you know going from one job to the other uh, how you're going to manage that and if the receiving company the receiving manager would be open to you know giving you a sponsorship for the visa yeah uh, it's it's definitely more relaxed when you are a citizen of a country you can jump jobs sh- jump ships very quickly mm-hmm. uh in terms of uh professional um uh, uh experience also i have a great story and that's why i'm giggling almost <laughs> because um one year after coming to us as a student um mm-hmm. and i was working full time and i was a full time student also um i um at that point i went back to visit my boyfriend and um, he was also doing phd in india and uh-huh. i was doing phd in us but there was so much of a change in the work styles that i just couldn't imagine how much i had changed in that one year mm. you know um because you because i was being paid a full fellowship because uh, you know uh, i was on um, student visa uh, you know there was a lot of commitment i think and the work culture in us is you work like crazy from 9 to 5 9 to 6 and it's, especially if you are working in labs sometimes even later yeah you go late in the evenings late in the nights um so that is how i had you know started working i used to work endlessly 24/7 i had become a workaholic almost mm. and when i went back to india to visit him uh, and what i saw was it was a very relaxed culture even for phd students i mean he was doing phd in a premier institute in india yeah and um and you know it was much more relaxed they would uh uh you know there there was many more friends they would go out for coffee uh they would go out for lunch together um uh, not that we were not doing it in us but you know the lunches were extended and i was getting to a point where i was getting frustrated even staying with him for a couple of weeks i was asking him why don't you work i don't see you working <laughs> he was telling me about i am working Oh, what don't you see working mm. okay. phd supervisor is very happy with my performance with my results with my experiments that i'm setting up i'm setting them up and he used to work later in the nights also yeah but it was much more relaxed and uh, you know it almost felt like uh, there was no tension no anxiety he was working very effortlessly whenever he wanted and on the other hand of the spectrum i was working like crazy because i'm trying to yeah <laughs> i'm trying to work on that visa and trying to work on that fellowship before it it is exhausted and god forbid if my phd doesn't finish by that time then what will happen so there was always a constant pressure on my head to mm-hmm. you know uh, finish quickly yeah 
Wow. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly some differences in the, the culture of, of, of work there. I guess there, there would probably have been some, some of the obvious, I guess, in terms of um, the, the, the weather. I mean, us, mm-hmm. you know, I'm British, love talking about the weather always. Um, yeah. uh, the, the food and, and things, because this, this, you know, we, we recruit all around the world. So these are the mm-hmm. things I, I hear from people. It's, it's normally, you know, okay, what's the location like if, if someone's traveling mm-hmm. Their wife, they want to know what facilities are there, or you know, um, what mm-hmm. the weather's like, what the food's like. I, I guess that was perhaps another area that was uh, absolutely, absolutely difference between the, the, the states. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Right. So, you know, wherever you belong to, you have a certain uh, food habit. You like to try out different cuisines, but eventually your soul food is your own food, right? (laughs) So, uh, So I was always craving for Indian food. And to find Indian food, we had to go to... um, as a student, it was difficult to go to very distant uh, Indian superstores. Uh-huh. Right? And they were far and few. And, uh, you know, we had to change a couple of buses and in the middle of the snowstorm, go there to, to stock up. So um, that was the other thing I, I found was challenging because, uh, you know, I couldn't afford to eat out every day. I didn't want to eat out every day also because I wanted my Indian stuff. Uh, so that was another part that I always had to make make time to cook for myself, mm-hmm. at least for uh, a day or two in advance so that I had enough food when I got back from lab later in the evening, later in the night. Um, meanwhile, as I was just saying, when you go back to India to see your boyfriend, there was so much food around him. All the cafeterias, all the canteens, you could step out anywhere. There is all sorts of different foods, not just Indian food, but all sorts of different cuisines Mm. that you can try. So he didn't have to think about, you know, cooking and cleaning and keeping your uh, uh, fridge stocked up. Those were some of the extra burden that you always needed to schedule in your in your timetable. Mm. So you felt that he wasn't working as hard and he had all of this food cuisine on his doorstep as well. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, that's something uh, people forget when they move from one country to the other. Mm. Um, that's another thing you have to uh, think about. Uh, there will be cultural changes. Um, your family support is not there. Your friends uh, you're leaving behind. Uh, so you have to make new friends very quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, build your own support system, and then be able to, uh, you know, quickly adapt to the new place. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't expect to be eating Indian food in the middle of Buffalo all the time. <laughs> yep. And on top of it, I'm also a vegetarian, I've been brought up as a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So that was also um, an added thing to consider because if, even if you step out to a restaurant and think that you can you know, buy food somewhere, it, it was difficult at that time to find vegetarian food. So those are the types of cultural additions that you have to think about when you are moving halfway across the globe. 
Sure. No, I can imagine the, the difficulty with, with that. I think, um, I mean, uh, these days, finding vegetarian and, and vegan food mm -hmm. is, um, is very easy by comparison. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yes. maybe going back 10, 15 years, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't the, the, the case. Um, exactly. So look, that's talks. That's talked us through that some of the challenges, the hurdles. It's you know, as you said, you were the first from your family to emigrate from from uh, India, and I know, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you were quite rebellious in in doing that. So, um, but you, it sounds like you've always been very headstrong at doing what you want to do and, and making a success of it. You know, with the childcare and, and being very transparent, um, and then that takes us up to the point where you you landed. Um, a job in, in clinical research and then mm -hmm. from there it seems you know if anyone looks at, at your profile on, on LinkedIn it's almost like things have just exploded for you from mm -hmm. since then you've been with some of the you know the biggest players in, in the world of pharmaceuticals and you've progressed through the ranks to the point where you're now managing a whole variety of um, sort of programs and, and projects just talk us through in, in a snapshot how that progression because it's almost kind of textbook, isn't it? Where you went from coordinator to associate and then sort of up the ranks. Just mm -hmm. talk us through that and, and what advice you would maybe give to any of the, the people that are just getting into clinical research and want to, mm -hmm. to follow in your footsteps. Because that's kind of what the podcast is, is about. It's about your story, but also mm -hmm. a few tips, tricks and advice for those maybe following, following your footsteps. Absolutely. So although it looks like a success story after that, but it's not been that easy. Mm -hmm. You know, every day um, you run into challenges, you run into issues, personal, professional, um, you know, bringing up kids mm -hmm. in a foreign country uh, itself uh, requires an extra effort and extra uh, time on, on your schedule. Plus, you have to navigate your professional life. Um, so it, it wasn't easy, but I've been a per perpetual optimist and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if I'm going through a trough, I know that it can't go through, uh, you know, the, the rest of my life is not just a trough at some point I can, I'm going to come up. It's, it's a sign, sign wave, right? So yeah. that's what I believe in. Um, and I just keep uh, trotting along, plugging along, and I'm like, okay, so um, when I started as a clinical research coordinator and, you know, did that for a few years, I was about 25% of my work was investigator-initiated clinical trials, mm -hmm. where I would be supporting my physicians that I reported to, and I had multiple physicians that I reported into. Um, brilliant minds, they would scribble on the back of an envelope um, based on mechanism of action of a compound. Mm. Uh, it could also work on XYZ disease. Um, why don't we try that out? And basically I was responsible for taking that envelope and putting together a whole clinical trial. So writing the protocol, wow. getting the regulatory approval, getting the approval from the pharma company that produced that drug um, to get the drug material from them, maybe if possible, some grant uh, from them, um, 
you know, uh, designing the uh, CRFs, writing the ICF, mm. uh, getting the ethic committee approvals, and then collection of the data, and and all nine yards till the writing of the uh, clinical study reports. Wow. That taught me a lot. The other 75% of my work was pharma-sponsored clinical trial management, and it, you know that it was it was good in the sense that it was already fully baked. The protocol was there, the CRFs were there. Um, I just had to manage a whole lot of them from different sponsor companies. Mm. Um, but it, it taught me, um, you know, the interaction what goes on uh, at the pharma side, at the biotech side. Yeah. Um, and then very quickly, because Mount Sinai has a very unique system um, in clinical research, they, um, they have collaborations with some independent clinics all across the uh, New York City. Uh, these are strictly independent clinics with their mm. own clinical research staff, yeah. but only for clinical research, they collaborate with Mount Sinai. So, um, you know, my supervisors um, saw my potential in leading a group, and I was quickly made the uh, almost the manager of the uh, different clinical research coordinators from these independent sites. My job was to keep them uh, all uh, audit ready at any point of time, help them um, you know, understand the protocol and make sure that um, you know, uh, the recruitment was going on nicely. So, so that is what I did, uh, but I used to interact a lot with the pharma uh, uh, companies uh, because at the investigator meetings or the CRAs that used to frequent, uh, the auditors that, that came in. So um, someone just told me, why don't you try it out in the pharma company? Mm. And that stuck in my mind. And I decided, well, um, no harm in trying. My supervisors in, uh, in the hospital and at Mount Sinai, they were not so happy they were telling me why are you trying to go to the dark side wow. <laughs> you're doing so well here why would you want to leave all that and start from scratch mm. well i already started from scratch three times in my life earlier when i left everything in india came to us for um you know structural biology research and phd and um the second time i started from scratch was in preclinical research and the third time I started from scratch was in clinical research. So I wasn't afraid of starting from the scratch, going to pharma side, just yeah. to explore. So I've been, I have this curious mind where I like to explore new areas and that took me to pharma side. I went to Merck, who was at that time looking for a person who had a lot of experience in investigator initiated clinical trials. So I joined work. It was a short-term project, only three-month contract. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it was a huge risk. I was told if if they don't extend your contract or if you don't get another job, what are you going to do? And remember, I had a break in my professional life, and I moved from preclinical to clinical for about mm -hmm. a year, um, from Michigan to Greater New York area. So it was very fresh in my mind. Um, so I hesitated just a little bit, but then I decided, well, 
again, leap of faith. We'll see where it takes yeah. me. If nothing else, I'll come back to any one of the hospitals. Now I have much more experience as a clinical research coordinator. Mm. Um, there's no reason why I cannot come back. If nothing else, maybe I'll try for preclinical research again. Mm. So I decided to take that three month contract at Merck and never looked back. <laughs> Amazing. And then from then, yeah, I guess at that point, things did, you know, start to, to progress and, and take off. Um, and then I guess, you know, you've now been in, in clinical research for, for many years. You've been very successful um, and, you know, you're now sort of a director and project leader uh, for a, yeah, a, a very big and well-known um, firm with, uh, in, in terms of Sanofi. Um, but what challenges and you know, whether it's been staffing of, of your, your trials, furlough, working from home, what sort of challenges have you faced um, mm -hmm. both on the business front and, and, you know, perhaps personally, you know, dealing with working from home over mm -hmm. the past, past year since the pandemic broke out? Yeah, it's another uh, interesting time that right now we are going through where a lot of us, um, are forced into working from home or working remotely. Mm. I remember when I started in pharma, um, you know, it was a very uh, um, junior position. I was just a, a coordinator, a specialist in investigator-initiated trials, um, but there was no flexibility in those times, even in that junior position, which was all computer-based, mm -hmm. uh, to work from home. So I was literally commuting 50 miles one way, meaning 100 miles every day to get to work and come home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, that was the condition. You can't work from home. There was no remote working at that time. So literally you had to do that. Yeah. Um, and then as I progressed, um, you know, in other companies, uh, I started seeing some flexibility as time went on, the flexibility increased. I guess um, people were getting more and more comfortable, but mm -hmm. still not to a point where uh, for most positions, it was still that they were office-based. It's only because of this COVID-19 pandemic that we have seen such a huge number of us uh, are working 100% remote. So, but even in, in the times when I was still, you know, a research coordinator and uh, working at Merck, I would always question if my, most of my work is going to be computer-based and I have a laptop in my hand, yes, it used to be a very heavy laptop in those days. But <laughs> if I have a laptop, how does it matter whether I work in the office completing my data entries or whether I sit in the central park or I sit at my home. Mm. And at that point, no one was listening. But now this is the, the largest, I guess, data test that we have survived for last nine months. All of us are literally forced to work from home, at least a good 80 to 90% of us in pharma companies. Yeah. Definitely. Well, what are your your thoughts on, I guess, 2021, the, the vaccines, working from home, um, 
decentralized trials, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, for me, I, I like I like working from home. I mean, we've been set up for it for for a while. My my team mm-hmm. absolutely love it. I actually get, you know, almost I think more out of them just by giving them that trust rather mm-hmm. than over their shoulder than what we've ever done. Um, right. It's been great, but. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on say, the, the vaccines and, and what's in store for us mm-hmm. in 2021? Yeah, so this week has been a momentous week. We heard that in US, Pfizer uh, vaccine is coming out and the first person has been inoculated. So great work. I mean, I have not, not worked in vaccines. I would love to, but um, I can say that this whole um, fast forwarding of the clinical research process, which used to take 10 to 12 years to get uh, a vaccine or even uh, a good medicine out in uh, in the market, mm. has now been shrunk into less than an year. I'm not sure how sustainable it is going to be in all disease area, in all therapeutic areas, but I'm hopeful that this will stick now. Um, if not, uh, you know, as much as going from 10, 12 years to one year, at least if we can even half it, that would that would also be a great achievement. So the silver lining on COVID-19 pandemic, I think, is for clinical research, it's going to bring, um, you know, a lot of streamlined processes, very expedited processes, um, which is always good for the world, for our patients. Uh, and also for the companies, because if they can get the drugs out quickly, uh, they also get to make more money, right? Mm. So, so I think it's it's going to be really important to keep up with this trend uh, and to try to duplicate it in different disease areas. Um, some of them, oncology maybe, is going to be difficult. Um, maybe even some more are going to be difficult uh, but let's try to strive to uh, you know compress the timelines mm. we have been making only small progress um, over the last 10 20 years but this has been you know a game changer if you can call it covid 19 has literally brought us to our knees to understand where we can expedite our processes. So I, I am really hopeful that this trend would continue uh, and in other therapeutic areas also. And I think the, the awareness that the pandemic has brought to, to the industry and to clinical trials has, has been amazing. You know, I can now mm-hmm. speak to, to you know, my peers and, and my friends outside of work mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they understand kind of what we recruit into you know they've mm-hmm. understood the engineering side of the business for, for years but now when i say clinical trials and etc they're mm-hmm. like oh that's that's what you do i'm like yes yes um, so it's mm-hmm. you know i think that that has been a, a great side of things um so look, I also feel, i'm sorry i also feel that now that we have a greater um you know understanding in uh, out in the world about clinical trials now is is the time where iron is hot. If we really promote clinical trials, because you know, pharma industry, clinical trials, human testing has had some um, black botches mm. in the past. This is the time to redeem ourselves. We can really 
you know, played to our advantage uh, to say, look, without clinical research, we couldn't have done this. It's almost like a miracle to bring yeah. 10, 12 years of research into, into one. And without our patients, without the volunteers who participate in these clinical trials, it would not have been possible. Um, so if we can, you know, um, I don't know, advertise is the right word, but if you can advertise it, um, you know, a lot of the therapeutic areas might be able to benefit from this because now this, this, um, uh, this bad reputation of participating in human clinical trials mm. could be wiped off and we could benefit out of that. Yeah, just almost break, break that stigma. Um, mm -hmm. Of you know people participating as almost lab rats as it as it may be, um, yes. it's it's kind of once that goes and it's it's like everyone working together. Hopefully, that movement will just yeah bring bring bigger and better things and, and faster results for 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 everyone uh, I guess around mm -hmm. the world. Uh, which exactly. Uh, but look, One of the longest pieces in clinical research was the recruitment in clinical trials, especially large clinical trials. Mm. And a lot of therapeutic areas, a lot of clinical trials struggle there. So this might be um, something that we can use to, you know, educate the masses that this is a good thing. You're doing a service to not only yourself, your friends, your family, mm. but to the whole humankind by participating in these clinical trials. And it comes with a responsibility, obviously, that we have to um, show that we are working very ethically and we are clean and we are not going to repeat some of the past bad experiences. Definitely. Well, I know that you're a big advocate of, of helping others. I know you do volunteering work. You act as a mentor to, to those that you work with as, as well. Um, I don't know where you fit, fill it all in sometimes by, uh, you know, from, from our conversations, but outside of the world of, of pharma, um, Again, just give us a quick snapshot of, of yourself. I mean, what do you, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm big into sports. I quite like cooking and, and food and, and things like that. What's, what are your interests outside of um, sports? What would you be doing if you hadn't maybe made that jump <laughs> from, from India <laughs> over to the States and gone on that crazy path of yours to, to where you are now? What, what would you be doing um, outside of this, do you, do you think, um, therapy? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I'm a very avid globe trotter. <laughs> yeah. I love traveling, um, you know, trying out different cuisines, trying out, um, you know, different cultures. So that probably I would have done that. I would have been a, a globe trotter. And now nice. in the last 10 years, we have seen a lot of, um, you know, travel blogs. But in those days, there was nothing travel blogging, but it was travel writing. I would have been a travel writer, maybe. Yeah, um, nice. I, I still like to travel a lot with my sons. I have two sons. Um, mm. And uh, the other thing that I am uh, very passionate about is helping others, whether uh, it is career coaching. Um, so I'm also a career coach pro bono most of the times. Mm. Um, I've been doing that for since since I was in my first master's in India, uh, people came up to me and asked me for advice and I acted as a sounding board and that has continued. Mm. The biggest testimonial is that I've never advertised uh, a lot about it. 
just a word of mouth from people brings other uh, uh, others to ask for advice and uh, people that I have worked in the past still keep in touch with me, still ask me for advice. People um, that have never worked in the past, just referred by someone else, mm. still keep giving me repeat business. So something that I'm doing there, I'm doing right. Yeah, I, know I mean, it's, it's similar for, for us as a business, you know, our business grows pretty much all on, on referrals. You do a good job. You be transparent, as I said earlier. Right. I think that, that just, you know, creates a continuous cycle and it's, it's good for mm -hmm. everyone that's involved. Uh, but I'm uh, also a food blogger on the side uh, oh, because I, I like, love to try out the cuisine. But you are doing the food blogging. <laughs> yeah, so I like to cook uh, different cuisines, mm. learn from my friends from all different cultures. But nowadays, YouTube has become my biggest, uh, you know, teacher. Mm -hmm. And then I try to make those traditional recipes, which used to take, you know, sometimes days to make. Uh, as a scientist, I'm always putting my hat on and thinking, how can I do the same cooking from scratch but compress the timeline so mm. imagine the vaccine timeline going from 12 years to one year <laughs> that's constantly on my mind when i'm looking at some traditional dishes whether mm. it's italian or chinese or indian that used to take like days of preparation and bringing it together and you know cooking it um i've successfully done that for a couple of uh, Indian recipes, a, a couple of Mediterranean recipes, Italian recipes. So I started my own food blog on how you can compress your timelines and still cook from scratch with the same results. You're not compromising on the quality and the taste. <laughs> I like it. Um, Sirapi, it's been fantastic having you on the show. I'm sure that there will be people that are interested to either look you up, re, um, you know, reach out in some way. What's the best way to, to, to find you? And in, including that, perhaps the, a link to the, the food blog. So what's, what's your food blog called and, and how should people perhaps reach out to you if, if needed? Yeah, so my food blog is Suravi S, Suravi's cookbook.blogspot.com. Uh -huh. So S-U-R-A-B-H-I-S. C O O K B O O K dot blogspot dot com. Um, professionally, you can always contact me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email on my personal email, Sharma twenty two Surabi at gmail dot com. S H A R M A number twenty two S U R A B H I at gmail dot com. I guess I'm sure there'll be some people checking out the, uh, the food blog. Others may well want to reach out for some tips and advice on, on you know, on, on a professional level, but let's, um, so repeat, it's been fantastic having you on. Thanks very much for sharing your story and look, you and I, I'm sure we'll keep in, in touch. Um, cause I'll be interested to see what 2021 brings for, for you and, and your team at Sanofi. Perfect. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you.